Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. My name is Duncan Iverson. I'm the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research here at the University of Sydney. I have one of the best jobs in the world because I get to hang out with people who you're going to meet tonight in a minute talking about their extraordinary research. And tonight, uh, we're exploring this amazing uh, set of ideas, seeing the unseen from brains to black holes. However, before we begin, it's very important that we take a moment to uh, acknowledge uh, where we're sitting tonight, where we're standing tonight. And I'd like to invite Auntie Ann Weldon, board member for the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, to provide the welcome to country. Well, good evening, everybody. Beautiful building, hard to get to. I went around the world to get in. I don't know, I don't have uh, tracker instincts in me, I tell you, I get lost. <laughs> then again, I don't believe anybody in here would have the same either. I firstly need to make you aware that I am a Wiradjuri Koori Balang. And Wiradjuri, of course, is one of our many mighty Aboriginal nations here in Australia. Balang in my language is woman and Koori is Aboriginal. I come from Irambi Aboriginal Reserve in Cowra, New South Wales, and I belong to the Clear River people. In, in fact, the Wiradjuri means three rivers people. Um, we have many rivers in Wiradjuri country, but the three main rivers is the Murrumbidgee, the Clear River, of which I'm a part of that particular clan group. It's been renamed the Lachlan, and the Womble, which has been renamed the Macquarie. I'm a board member of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, an elder of New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, a mother of three, a grandmother of 11 beautiful grandchildren and a great-grandmother of the cutest, beautifulest little handsome man in the world. For this particular part of country, uh, Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council is the cultural authority and custodian of culture, heritage, land and waterways. And I stand proud of my people's richness of our culture and our strong resilience. I acknowledge all other Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal brothers and sisters here in the room, as many of you have travelled near and far to be here. I acknowledge the owners of the land on which we gather, the Eora Nation and Gadigal people. For the Gadigal clan was one of 29 clan groups of the mighty Eora Nation. And I pay my respects to all Elders, past, present and emerging, from our many Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal nations across our country, and express my deepest appreciation and realise that our elders made many, many sacrifices through fortitude, courage and wisdom to build a better future for us all. For it is our elders that hold the memories, the traditions and the culture and the hopes of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people across our country. But undeniably, history has certainly dealt my people unjust treatment and sadly we witness and continue to be paralysed by these unfortunate injustices. For my people, Aboriginal Australia, we have existed, belonged to, come from these lands that stretches beyond 60,000 years. We are one of the richest and the oldest continuing cultures in the world. And our practice of culture and language has been handed down to hundreds and hundreds of generations. For I learnt my Wiradjuri culture and traditions by the teachings and by listening to my elders, for my elders informed the truth 
from their lifelong experiences and the facts are seen through their eyes. And I call them our strong, clever ones. For our ancestors left us a legacy that gave us strength to continue when all seems lost, to stay strong and to know that there are many ways to achieve what we believe in, and that is a just and a true outcome. They left us a legacy of love and the ability to find laughter in the worst of times. And the saddest of stories of heartbreak was always spoken in the still whispers of the night that were followed by a story that joined us together in laughter. And this is how our history, this is our my history, this is how my children and children in these times know of a place that existed before them. And as a Wiradjuri Koori Balang, I would like you to celebrate, to be proud, to stand with us, to walk beside us. Please do not walk ahead of us. And allow Aboriginal people to share the wealth that our country has to offer. It is doing this with us instead of people making decisions for us that will allow us to create our own pathways and reach our own destinies. Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council certainly promotes a vision of working together as one community and to achieve as one community. And our philosophy prides itself on respect, patience and tolerance of all Australians. And this evening I certainly bring you a message of respect and caring. The boundaries for the mighty Eora Nation spans from the Hawkes River to the north, the Nepean to the west and to the Georges River in the south. So as I stand before you this evening, it is truly with honour that I and welcome you to the land of the mighty Eora Nation and Gadigal people as we stand on their traditional land. And I thank Sydney University for allowing me to come here to conduct the welcome. My daughter was actually going to be, but unfortunately she had to, had to go to Melbourne. So I'm a bit of a stand-in tonight. But um, nevertheless, it is an honour and I thank you for allowing me to come. And I love the, the uh, fact, the topic of um, seeing, is it seeing the un, unseen from the brains to black holes, you know? So a very interesting topic, no doubt. And um, I'm sure that, you know, the leading experts that you have here in the room will enlighten your thought and be creative, have you have creative thoughts about where to in the future or how one interprets certain things. There is one thing that I always ask when I get to perform welcomes, and I've said it hundreds and hundreds of times, I've asked it and requested it hundreds of times, is for each and every one of us to remember our loved ones that have passed over before us, the incredible giants that have allowed us to stand on their shoulders, the beautiful people that are sitting or standing beside you now, but more importantly, those beautiful, gorgeous, precious little ones that follow in our footsteps. So may my people spirit walk and guide all of us as we continue on that journey together and let that journey be one where we can certainly continue to make our country the best that it is in the world. So once again, welcome to the land of the mighty Eora Nation and Gadigal people. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Antian. That's wonderful for that wonderful welcome to country. Let me too uh, acknowledge the Gadigal people who are the traditional owners of this part of uh, the land that the university is built on. Our campuses are on many lands of Australia's First Nations people. Uh, it's a legacy and a tradition about which we are so proud at the University of Sydney. This has been a place of learning and teaching, not just for the past 167 odd years, but more than 60,000 years something we're very uh, honored to continue. Well, as I said, you're in uh, for a fantastic uh, treat tonight. Welcome uh, to this 
wonderful Sydney Ideas event. It's also part of Sydney University's Innovation Week 2019. It's a, a veritable plethora of uh, innovation happening across campus over the next week. We had our staff uh, awards last night. We have a whole series of events uh, happening between now and the end of Friday. But tonight is a, a wonderful chance to open up the university to you and to introduce you to some extraordinary ideas and some of the extraordinary researchers who are working on them. So I'm delighted to have you all here tonight. And the topic is quite uh, an unusual one, perhaps. You're probably wondering, what is this all about? What does this really mean, seeing the unseen? Well, so much of cutting-edge science and deep research in the humanities and social sciences involves imagining that which we can't quite see, whether it's understanding the past, whether it's seeing into the brain, whether it's peering uh, into the depths of the universe or the depths of the human body. How, how do we do that? How do we capture it? How do we make sense of it? All of the extraordinary researchers we're gonna meet tonight are exploring this question in various range of different ways. And it's also about creativity. It's not just biomedical researchers or philosophers. It's also about writers and musicians and artists who are often in nonverbal ways trying to explore the nature of the unseen. And also we wanted to bring together people who spend their days peering at images and people who spend days and hours thinking about the nature of images and how the brain processes images. And we wanted to give free reign to artists to think about these questions too. So it might seem as though we've set up, you know, one of those really bad academic jokes. You know, what happens when you cross an engineer with a professor of neuro neurology, a physicist, and a philosopher? What happens when they walk into a bar together in front of 800 people and start talking to each other? Well, that's what we'll find out uh, tonight. Fernando Calamante, who's director of Sydney Imaging, uh, the biomedical imaging and core research facility here at the University of Sydney is going to speak to us. He's a professor in the School of Aerospace, Mechanical and Mechatronic Engineering in our Faculty of Engineering. Michael Barnett, professor of neurology, a member of the Brain and Mind Center, one of our multidisciplinary initiatives here at the University of Sydney. We'll follow him. We'll then uh, hear uh, from physicist Professor Céline Boehm, who's also head of the School of Physics, and she'll be talking about black holes and dark matter. Céline joined us in January 2018, and I should say she's only the second woman in history, uh, at the University of Sydney at least, to be the head of the School of School of Physics. She's an astroparticle physicist. It's wonderful to have her tonight. And then David Braden Mitchell, a professor of philosophy uh, who focuses on philosophy of mind and metaphysics, will prod our uh, intellectual depths with some of his uh, thoughts on the subject. And then to close out the program, uh, Benjamin Carey will be performing a new audiovisual performance on the modular synthesizer that you can see right there with some live visuals. So a quite extraordinary uh, bonanza of talent for all of us. So let's welcome all of our speakers here tonight. Excellent. Um, all right, so yes, Duncan said, well, and it's a great pleasure for me to start these four presentations, and both Michael and I, the two first presentations, we're gonna kind of be looking inside us, while then Celine is gonna start looking outside us, and then David is gonna 
had to find the punchline for that joke that Dan can mention. <laughs> Whenever we look at the brain, networks play a huge important role. So even if you look with a microscope and you look at cells and neuronal cells, they are actually interconnected to each other, forming a network. So no cell works by itself on its own. If we zoom out and we look at the brain on the whole, as a whole, so you're looking at the brain from outside, from out here, you get on the right, you see how the, the, the areas of the brain are getting synchronous and asynchronous and working together again. You see that no area of the brain is working by itself. There are different areas talking and working to each other. So brain networks play an important role no matter the scale that you see the brain. If you take a post-mortem brain and you cut it, you slice it, and as you know, you have the, the gray matter, this area, for example, in the cortex, all the uh, ribbon in the cortex where contain most of the neural bodies, and is where the function takes place. So for example, each of you, while you're listening to me, these areas, the, the green areas that are in, in the picture are the areas that are working to listen to me. Um, the areas at the bottom here, the back of your brain, are the ones that are working to view this slice and view me. And there are different networks that they play different roles when you do certain actions and certain functions or your thinking and things like that. The why matter, very unin, you know, unoriginal name, the opening is called white and they call it why matter. Initially it was thought to be a place where it was more a passive role, but now we all know that it's really where the, the connections between the various gray matter regions take place. So we can think of the brain more as uh, the white matter really as the cable, as the connections of the brain between different areas of the brain. And in fact, now it has been shown that it's implicated in many, many diseases where you actually get a wrong connection, a disruption, a rewiring, and that has a huge implication on the disease and on, the, on, on how we, our brain works. If we look at the brain, in fact, if instead of just cutting it with its knife, like the one on the, the picture there on the left, if you were to cut it and you do a, you know, more careful dissections, you start seeing these spaghetti-like structures that are the bundles of axons, and you immediately can see there these, these cables, if you want, connecting different areas of the brain. And that's what we're trying to see in, in you know, both Michael and my talk, we're gonna be talking, how can we use MRI to see these structures and what, can we, what information can provide us to? To us. In particular, the technique that we use in MRI is known as diffusion MRI. And just for term diffusion, we're talking is, you know, that thermal random motion, if you just get a glass of water, all the water molecules are moving and bouncing and with each other. And as you know, that, you know, the, our body is full of water. And in, what we're doing in MRI is looking at the motion of these water molecules inside the brain. And what you find is that these water molecules, they find much easier to move along this spaghetti-like structures that are across the structures because you had the bundle, you know, the, the membranes. So we can use MRI to sensitize the image that we acquire in the, in the MRI scanner to this type of motion of the molecules in these uh, structures. And, and this is something that we've done a lot of work in, in, in my lab for, for many, many years. And for example, if we look at a cube, a little brain, and schematically we show the structures that are there, these cylinders, and we have cylinders going in one direction and cylinders going in the other direction. We did a lot of modeling to get, how can we go from the MRI images that we get, what model is we can do to calculate things like the one schematically showed there on the right, where we can see, for example, in that little cube, what proportion of fibers we have in this particular case, more blue ones horizontal 
and red one vertical ones, in which directions have, you know, what sizes and things like that. In, in practice in the brain, these, these kind of cubes are much, much smaller. When we do MRI, we do things of about millimeters or so. So when we do the pictures, what it looks in, in reality is like this. So you're looking at somebody from the side. All this is, you know, now not, we don't have to open the brain and take the brain anymore. We just put any subject into the MRI scanner in a completely non-invasive way. We can start reconstructing pathways within each pixel. You can see there the, the distribution of these fibers, of these spaghetti-like structures. We can see areas where we have one of these fibers, two of these fibers, three of these fibers, a lot of complexity and crossing of these structures. The colors here are, represent the orientation. So structures that go from the front to the back are represented green. Uh, structures that go from the bottom to the top are represented blue. And the structures that go um, left to right are red. And any orientation in the middle would be just a mix of the colors. So the next obvious step is what your eyes and your mind is doing in your head. You're, it's hard to see these pictures without starting to link them. And you know, it's a bit of the kids, they go link the number one to the number two to the number three and they make those pictures. This is what we, we can do. So you know, we can start following these pathways and try to reconstruct the, the, the cables in the brain. And, and in fact, yeah, so we've done a lot of work over the years to develop very robust ways to do this fiber tracking. It's called track these structures and generate pictures like this. So if you're looking, you start seeing, for example, there you see structures um, that are involving the language in the motor, all the limbic things like emotions, memories, the visual pathways. So we can start generating now, and I emphasize again, this is completely uninvasive. We don't have to take the brain, cut it open and look. We just put a subject in the MRI scanner, a few minutes in the MRI scanner, we then take those pictures and we're able to reconstruct a representation of the cables, the wiring in the brain. So we were able to generate now in a non-invasive way, see what's happening inside the brain and how these areas are connected to each other. So if I relate back to this picture that I showed at the beginning, you can imagine how now we're able to have a huge amount of information that we can start seeing and trying to work out, you know, what area is connected to what area in a disease process, what can be affected in a, in a neurodevelopmental things, how it goes from, you know, uh, babies to adults to elderly, how things change. And it's a very powerful technique as, as Michael is going to now show us what, how can we have a role in, in disease. Thanks very much, uh, Fernando. I'm not usually nervous at talks like this, but the last time I was in this room was about 30 years ago and I was sitting a second-year medicine exam and walking into the room, it did bring back a few pangs of emotion, but I'll, I'll do my best. So um, as Duncan mentioned, I'm a neurologist and I usually see the world and in particular the brain through the prism of neurological disease. And so I'm going to give you some examples of neurological disease that speak to the connectivity of the brain or the connectome of the brain and how that can be disrupted in disease that Fernando has already mentioned. So I'll start with a disease that's quite close to my heart because it's the focus of my own research and that's multiple sclerosis. MS is the commonest cause of neurological disability in young adults. It affects probably 25 to 30,000 uh, people in Australia, somewhere between 500,000 and a million in the United States. Um, and it usually results in episodes of neurological dysfunction, whether that's visual loss, motor dysfunction, 
lateral bowel problems, cognitive dysfunction. And while the disease has been absolutely transformed by modern therapies, MRI is giving us insights into the pathogenesis of the disease and also allowing us to monitor treatments, um, which is leading to the development of a number of novel therapies, which I won't go into tonight. So this is an MRI, which is a, a sort of fairly typical scan, and you can probably all see some globular white-looking areas, and these are MS plaques or lesions. So these are focal areas of inflammation or damage. And looking at this brain, you wouldn't really know where they are, but if you keep in mind the picture that Fernando showed you before, you might imagine that lesions like this could easily disrupt not just local nerves, but connected nerves, connected fibres, networks, and indeed the whole connectome of the brain. If you wanted to look at what was going on inside one of those lesions, it would look like this. So on the left, you can see an active MS lesion under a microscope. And all of those little round areas filled with brown dots are macrophages or inflammatory cells in the brain that have gone in and damaged nerve fibres. And this is known as a demyelinating disease where myelin is stripped off the nerve fibres. But if you look carefully at these nerve fibres, you also see that many of them are damaged. They're transected, and in the middle and the right side, you'll see images showing these little round bulbs, which is what happens when you chop a nerve in half, it retracts into a little ball. They're called axonal retraction bulbs. And in a single cubic millimetre of active MS lesion, you transect about 10,000 nerves. So you can imagine in a lesion that might be half a centimetre cubed, you transect hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of nerves. And this obviously can cause disruption of the white matter tracts and cause the functional deficits we see in this disease. On an MRI, we recognise on conventional sequences an active MS lesion like this is areas of contrast enhancement that you can see, those little white areas. They appear in the brain after you inject contrast during an MRI. But they don't really give us a great deal of structure function information. They just tell us approximately where in the brain these lesions are. You can imagine a single MS lesion like that, how it might affect the connectivity. So this is a connectome of a patient's brain, in fact, a patient with MS, who presented with a single lesion like that. And while we may not see all the manifestations of that lesion clinically by just looking at the patient, talking to the patient, if we perform detailed neuropsychological assessments on that patient, we can see significant changes from even a single lesion. But you can imagine what might happen to a patient if they have a scan like this. All of those little red dots are lesions in a patient. This is a patient with 300 MS lesions. And if you look at that in three dimensions, you might see this sort of picture. That is, exact, that is in fact the same patient. So you can imagine a patient with a brain with that many lesions, what that might do to that patient's ability to think, ability to walk, ability to see. I'm trying to tie this in carefully with the black holes, and David told me I'd struggle to do that, but indeed, that is an MRI of a patient who's got a few of those lesions in the brain, and you can see, believe it or not, what we actually call in neurology black holes. These are black holes in the brain, and black holes are areas of complete axonal or nerve fibre destruction in the brain. And that is quite common in patients with significant disability from this disease or advanced disease. 
I suppose you're going to say, well, how, what, what is the, the, the relationship between those black holes and the clinical features of the disease? This is, in fact, Augustus de Est, and he was the first, uh, he wrote the very first dissertation of the symptoms of MS about 100 years before the disease was properly synthesised by Charcot. And he happens to be the illegitimate grandson of George III. And he wrote an amazing treatise on his symptoms of relapses and remissions, of cognitive symptoms, visual symptoms, motor symptoms, bladder and bowel dysfunction. And it was as good a description as you would find in any modern neurologist's letter, if not a lot better. Using the techniques Fernando has shown us now, we don't just see a little black hole in a part of the brain. We can actually map out exactly which tracts of the brain those lesions lie in. And so the red lesions you see on the right, some of them are in the motor tracts, what we call the corticospinal tracts in blue. Others lie in the fibres that connect the two halves of the brain together, the corpus callosum, which is shown there in yellow. And we can track what happens in those lesions over time and how it affects function, and we know exactly which fibre bundles it's in, and therefore we know what connectivity those fibres have using the technology that Fernando has described. In children, this is particularly important. This is a paper from this year from a, a, another group just showing that if you disrupt the connectome in children, even though they might appear completely normal physically as they get older, they have significant cognitive deficits that really they just never catch up to their peers, emphasising the importance of stopping these lesions appearing in the first place. So that's an example, MS, of where we are having black holes appearing in the brain due to a disease process disrupting the connectome of the brain and manifesting with the clinical features I've described. Now, conversely, I'm going to show you an example of where doctors actually place black holes in the brain in order to treat disease. So Anthony down the back is going to start that video for me on the left. So you can see this gentleman here has got a very disabling tremor. Um, he has a condition called essential tremor quite common condition. Several people in this room are likely to have essential tremor. It's a condition with no known cause, other than the fact we know that it seems to be an exaggeration of the normal oscillatory circuits in the brain. On the right, if you can just start that video, this man has had a procedure, believe it or not, a procedure with no incisions and no medications, and his tremor is now markedly better. And you can see those spiral drawings down the bottom that he has drawn and the remarkable improvement. And this was done very recently in Sydney at St Vincent's Hospital. And this is uh, a therapy called focused ultrasound therapy where the patient's brain, as you can see here, is subjected to high-intensity focused ultrasound beams placed in one small part of the brain which burns a tiny black hole in the brain of about one to two millimetres, and if we know exactly where to place that black hole, we can disrupt the exaggerated circuit in the brain. So this is sort of an example of the converse of the disease-causing black holes I showed you in multiple sclerosis. And this is one of those black holes. On the left, you can see what we would see in a traditional MRI, not much except the little black hole in the middle. And this is using software that Fernando has developed um, 
in Melbourne and at Sydney University showing that we can see exactly which fibres that that lesion is placed in. This is the same patient. Again, a non-invasive study showing exactly which fibres, which direction they're running in and where they're going. That is allowing us to refine these sort of therapies to make sure we're in exactly the right place when we give these therapies. And it's also leading to a novel way to look at neurodegeneration. We're burning a small hole in the brain. We can follow using the techniques developed by Fernando. We can follow those tracks and see what happens along those tracks over time as a model of neurodegeneration across a broad range of other diseases. So I'm just going to come back and finish on this slide to say, look, here we have the brain in all its glory with all of the tracks shown, but we can break that brain down now into not just individual circuits, but we can break down the brain into the connectome of the brain and see where that leads us as far as both disease goes and ways also to treat disease uh, conversely by um, interfering with maladapted circuits in the brain. I'll finish there. Thanks very much. So I'm the physicist in the story, I guess. Um, so we just heard that, the, uni that the, the brain contains defects which are like black holes. And in reality, the universe does contain black holes too. So the first question is, what is a black hole? And the first person who actually introduced the concept is Carl Schwarzschild in 1916. And introduced this concept soon after Einstein had actually introduced the theory of general relativity. General relativity states that any massive bodies, like a planet, like a star, will bind, will basically curve space-time. And what, I mean, in principle, this means that essentially what is important is mass. But what Schwarzschild realized is that it shouldn't just be mass, it should be mass and the size of the object. So what he understood is that if an object is extremely massive but extremely small, then the, the gravity and the space-time would be so important, so curved, that light will never come out from this object. So you lose information. And um, what he had in mind is basically an object which, which starts with a very big mass and then you shrink this object. And of course, this is a mathematical construct, and the question is, does this exist in nature? And the person who actually showed us that, yes, this could exist in nature, is actually a brilliant uh, physicist coming from India, Chandra Seka, who you see at the bottom of this image. Chandra Seka realized that he, he loved dwarf, uh, white dwarfs, which are basically stars which are dying. And what he realized is that when the stars are dying, the, the pressure coming from the inside, from, from uh, all the reaction which keep it alive, are stop, is stopping. As the pressure stops, gravity can act on this object and basically make it collapse. So you have an object which is a star, so quite, quite heavy in principle, with a large mass. And then as gravity is acting and collapse, making it collapse, then this object with a huge mass become a tiny hole tiny place with a huge mass. And that is exactly what the condition basically that Churchill described. So in reality, when, when the object which is collapsing with this very big mass is becoming so very tiny, it reaches a size which is very critical and we call the Schwarzschild radius or the event horizon. Now that radius is a property which if you try to describe mathematically, you realize that all the equations start to become infinite. 
In physics, when something is infinite, we know that we actually don't have a mathematical framework. We cannot do actually physics anymore. So this means that when you reach the state of a, of a black hole, you can't describe it anymore. You don't have a physics. So it's a one thing to think, well, this could exist in nature, but it's another to detect it and to see it realized in nature. And we had to wait 100 years, but 100 years we discovered that, yes, indeed, we had a very direct proof that black holes exist, and not only just black holes, but two black holes together can actually come together and merge. When they merge, obviously, it's a cosmic event. A lot of energy is released, and it's released under a form of a wave. It's changing gravity, it's changing space-time, and when the wave propagates, everything changes around. Which means that on Earth, in principle, we receive any waves from the black hole's mergers. So it's not just a question of detecting it, but it took 100 years to develop the technology. Okay, so what you're seeing is a simulation of two black holes merging. And at some stage, I'm going to turn the other video, which is what the experiment called LIGO heard. So because it's a wave coming, you have a frequency, and because it's a frequency, we can turn it into a sound. You're going to hear chip, and this is the merger. This is a bit too late. And when you see chip, chip, this is the merger happening. This uh, discovery happened in 2015, amazing discovery. But what they discover is actually two small black holes. The very first discovery in 2015 was a black hole of the size of 30 times the mass of the sun. The other one was 40 times the mass of the sun. Together, they form a new black hole, about 80 times the mass of the sun. Very small black holes, actually. But we think that those are the seeds of much bigger black holes, which we call the uh, supermassive black holes. Now again, one thing to imagine they exist, never to detect them. And you, I'm sure you all know that in 2019, in April, we had the first ever image of a black hole. This is amazing uh, result. This was obtained by uh, a number of uh, telescopes together, which are called the, uh, the Event Horizon Telescope. And what they seen is not just a black hole, but it's actually the Event Horizon. So basically, Schwarzschild is right, this exists. What you see now in this picture, there is a ring of color with yellow and red. This is all the light which is produced by the material falling into the black hole. And inside that ring, you see a black spot, and that black spot is the event horizon. Now, this black hole has been observed in a major galaxy, very big one, which is called Messier 87. And because it's a major galaxy, it's a massive galaxy, then the black hole is also enormous. So it's the size is actually bigger, I think, than the solar system. It's a triumph for physics, obviously. It's a triumph for astronomy, but it's also a triumph of imagination. Triumph, someone, a mathematician, thought about equations, Einstein. Then someone studied those equations, found something very strange about them. And then here we go, we, we discover actually that this is realized in nature and we can see the unseen. Now, just to finish uh, very quickly, I just wanted to tell you something which I found extremely exciting, which is it's not the end of the story. Because somehow, black holes know the size of their host galaxies. So for whatever reason, which we don't understand, the size of a black hole is related to the size of a galaxy. And you would think that we know everything about galaxies, right? I mean, we know Earth very well. We know the laws of physics on Earth, so you'd think we know also the laws of physics in a galaxy. 
Turns out we don't. There's something extremely weird about galaxies. So you see on, on the left corner, you see a galaxy, which is a spiral galaxy. It's a, it's a massive, I mean, it's a massive object. You'd think that if, because it's massive and it probably dissipates, a star which is in a galaxy, so a star which is very far away, so in one of the arms, is probably having a rota velocity rotation, which is smaller than a star very close to the center, right? It would make sense. Uh, that's what we see on Earth. We always see something like this, dissipation. But it's not true. Uh, this galaxy actually rotates like a rigid body. So a star very far away from the galactic center has the same rotation velocity as a star very close to the rotation center, to the galactic center. And there is another property, which is that galaxies also over galaxies. So you know the Milky Way, you see it in picture here. The Milky Way has two companion galaxies, the LMC and SMC, that maybe you know. But in reality, it has at least 45, and we think it should be actually billions. And the billions we haven't seen yet, but we think they're there. So we're steering the images a lot in order to find those uh, companion galaxies. Now you may think, well, you know, how do you explain that? And we have an hypothesis. We think that the universe is made of a matter that you don't see, the dark matter, so invisible matter. So the neuroscientists have a gray matter, we have a dark matter. Um, you may think, well, you know, it's just imagination again, and how do you prove it, right? Well, we do simulations, and here a simulation of what the universe should look like if there is some invisible matter. And, if, and this invisible matter would explain galaxies. Now you see, what you see here, every white spot is actually a galaxy or a cluster of galaxies. And you see they're all connected. It looks very much like the brain or some, uh, some of the, um, uh, the images that you see in biology. They, everything is connected, but it's, in, it's connected through some invisible matter. You may, see, you may say it's a simulation, nothing to do with reality. Well, here is what we observe, actually. So... This is basically stacked images from SDSS survey, which is an amazing experiment, I mean, amazing uh, uh, observatory. And what you see now is we're digging into a cluster of galaxies right now, and then it's getting a little bit more empty. And now, hopefully, you can see some pattern emerging. All the galaxies are actually in specific direction, and that's reproducing the network I mentioned. So you see filaments in reality. And so, indeed, we can, when we match the, the observation to the simulation, we see that actually it's correct. Every single galaxy is related to the other one through this kind of invisible matter. So what is dark matter? Well, we don't know. But what is interesting, and that's the biggest challenge now in, uh, in physics, I think, um, we know that we can describe, we can use mathematics to describe all particles that we have detected so far on Earth. But when we use this mathematical framework, which was actually provided by Amy Nutter, a German physicist, we actually cannot, we make predictions, but we actually make predictions which are always wrong, essentially. And we do not know um, what is dark matter. This mathematical framework doesn't predict the right things. So the question is, are we going to turn this around and make a discovery very soon, or will we need to change paradigm? And if we do need to change paradigm, maybe we need to look at what scientists are doing when they look at the brain. Maybe we can have a new mathematical framework, which will help us to progress. Thank you. So my brief was to say something which would stitch together talks about the medium small scale brains and the big scale 
black holes, galaxies, and the cosmos. And we batted around a bunch of ideas, and they didn't look too promising. But then I had a thought. There's a problem, a really interesting problem, which is precisely about brains and the big picture about the cosmos. It's an argument which has an absolutely preposterous and unbelievable conclusion, and most of this short talk will be explaining that argument to you, and a little bit will be about saying how the kind of work that some of me and some of my colleagues are doing on trying to say why it doesn't work. <laughs> because if it does work, we're in big trouble, but it's really hard to see why it doesn't. So here is the argument with the preposterous conclusion. Each of you should think that nobody else in this room exists. In fact, your bodies don't exist. Only your brain exists, and it's about to be frozen. Celine's galaxies don't exist. If there are any, they're not the ones that you've seen in these pictures. What you are is an instantaneous burst of consciousness arising out of pure chance, which is about to freeze and no longer have any consciousness or existence. That's the conclusion of this absurd, well, it's not an absurd argument, that's the absurd conclusion of this interesting argument. And it relies on the idea that brains can have experience just briefly before they freeze because they're living in an empty universe composed of not much but gas. What sort of argument could lead to that? Well, I'm going to have to remind you of a few things that hopefully some of you are just reminding. You may remember that there's this thing called the second law of thermodynamics, which is sometimes understood as a law which says that the world and things in it go from order to disorder. Highly ordered states can easily become disordered, you know, eggs in their shells are nice and ordered, and they can easily become splodgy messes on your kitchen floor. But it's much less likely for the splodgy mess on your kitchen floor to spontaneously rearrange itself into an egg. You probably saw the reverse movie in high school. It's designed to illustrate this point. On the scale of the universe, the idea is that the universe starts in a state of highly ordered concentration of energy, and as it evolves, it spreads out more so that it's in the state that's livable for us. And then eventually it spreads out even more and we get what's sometimes called heat death, where stuff is spread out so evenly that it's all cold and even and complexity of the kind of thing that we are couldn't exist. This is a picture of Ludwig Boltzmann, the physicist who said invented um, thermodynamics, really. And his statistical theory of statistical mechanics was designed to show, I suppose, that this is not really a law in some independent sense. It arises out of statistics. That's going to be important for this argument. Let me try and explain that very briefly. The idea at its heart is super simple. There are just more ways to be a mess than there are ways to be structured or ordered. There are more ways for bits of egg to be splattered over your floor than there are to be concentrated in one thing. 
If I had a whole bunch of ball bearings now and I tossed them into this room, hoping that they would arrange themselves into a little square, I actually was considering doing this, but the uh, OH&S people told me it's a really bad idea, so I haven't. <laughs> Odds are we're not going to see a square. Why is that? Well, any particular way that the ball bearings might land is as likely, no more likely or less likely than any other way, but there are just a whole lot more ways the ball bearings can land, which don't form squares or circles or anything nice and ordered, than there are disordered ways they can land. So, from the point of view of the universe, the thought is something like, whenever there are random changes, there are just far more ways you can change, which will be more disordered than there are ways that you can be ordered. Random change will give us, on average, more disorder. This led Boltzmann, the guy who somewhat exaggerated uh, pictogram I showed you, to wonder, why is there any order at all if order is so damn unlikely? Right? Why is the universe like that? Why is there any order? And his thought was this, well, look, it's not impossible. It's just not likely. So if there's enough time, extremely unlikely things can happen. So one of the hypotheses he considered was that maybe the universe is mainly just disordered gas, but by fluke, after numbers of years which contemporary physics doesn't, don't entertain, huge numbers of years, you could suddenly get order by chance. The super unlikely will happen if you just wait long enough. Okay, nice idea, but there's a problem. What's more likely? That an entire universe will spontaneously form structure in order? Or that just, say, one galaxy, plus a bunch of misleading evidence at the edge of the galaxy about the best of the rest of the universe, could spontaneously form? Well, the galaxy, obviously, much more likely. It's a massive improbable fluke, but not nearly as big a massive improbable fluke as an entire universe suddenly becoming ordered in that kind of way. But if that's true, it's also true of, for example, a solar system. What's more likely? That random gas could suddenly and implausibly accrete to form our solar system with some misleading evidence at the edge of it than that a whole galaxy could form accidentally in that way. Much more likely that it's a solar system. But if that's true, why should we believe in the rest of the solar system? What's more likely? Just that the Earth and the things on it would randomly appear? You can probably see where I'm going. What's the limit of this sort of thinking? The limit is what's more likely? That a brain should suddenly materialize as a result of random statistical behaviors? Or that a whole planet should appear? Or solar system or galaxy? So, if it's true that order appears just because of lots of time and randomness, then what each of us should think, perhaps, is that what we are is just a brain, because that's more likely to emerge spontaneously than the rest of the universe. And that is pretty much close to unimaginable. Guy on the left is Arthur Eddington who in the 1930s first had the thought that 
If order was going to emerge spontaneously, it's more likely to be a small area than the entire universe. Guy on the right is Richard Feynman, who had the same thought in about 1964 and uh, made it more widely worried about. And the shrinking down to brains, the first publications I've seen about that thought were in a bunch of physics journals in about early 2000s, 2006, 2007. But lots of philosophers and physicists were worrying about this, at least in the early 2000s. I certainly was. Okay, so that's this hypothesis of Boltzmann's that maybe order arises um, out of just chaos and a bit of fluke. But what if we resist there and say, well, that's not right, Boltzmann. We've got some independent reason to believe there was a Big Bang, which was highly ordered, and things have moved on nicely since. Will that solve the problem? Unfortunately not. Here's why. If there really is a Big Bang in this universe, and if there really is a medium-ordered state about 13 billion years after it, Eventually, we're going to get to that heat death scenario, at least on some but not all cosmological models, in which there is perhaps infinite time for stuff to happen in a pretty much random kind of way. If there's infinite time, then although almost all of that infinite time will just be gas behaving the way it behaves, just particles really, behaving in a random way, all the things with non-zero probability will eventually happen. You just got to wait long enough. What does that mean? It means Boltzmann galaxies, Boltzmann planets, and far more than them, Boltzmann brains. So if you have a brain, which is a certain way, there are going to be many of those in the far reaches of the universe, perhaps infinitely many of them, only one 13 billion years after the beginning of the universe. What should you believe you are? The one at 13 billion years after the beginning of the universe or one of the trillions scattered somewhere else? A certain standard statistical piece of reasoning would say you should believe you're one of those ones in the far reaches of the universe that hasn't existed before, has just spontaneously appeared and is about to freeze. This is very depressing. <laughs> Not many brains like yours are part of a community, part of a planet, part of a solar system. Most, it would seem, are random fluctuations in an otherwise heat-deathy part of the universe. Now, I'm not asking you to believe that conclusion. <laughs> Let me get that straight. I don't believe it. Ignore the cliche of the crazy philosopher that's always going on about how, oh, if the tree falls down and no one sees it, does it really fall down? That's not what we're here for. We're not here to kind of uh, get excited about mad conclusions. And nor am I entirely telling you about this problem just because it's cool, although it is kind of cool. The real reason I'm talking about this is that arguments with crazy conclusions, which are good arguments, are incredibly important. If you have an argument with a crazy conclusion, then, and if it's a good argument, in this case I think the physics is serious, the logic, as we philosophers deal with, is serious, the statistical arguments are serious. If you have a serious argument with a crazy conclusion, you know something has gone badly wrong. And you've got to find out what it is that's gone badly wrong, and that's an important task. 
And one of the things that um, me and some of my colleagues in this department and philosophers elsewhere are doing is trying to say what's gone badly wrong in this kind of argument. And there's no consensus about what's gone wrong, not amongst philosophers, not amongst physicists. So let me just very briefly sketch three directions in which people are working. One is they're working on the structure of what are called self-undermining arguments. Self-undermining arguments are arguments whose conclusions seem to tell you you shouldn't believe the argument to begin with, but then you get in a nasty loop. Think about this case. Suppose physics tells you, or at least statistical mechanics tells you, that you should believe that you are a brain that suddenly materialized amongst gas and whose memories are all illusory. Do you have any reason to believe in physics then? Well, no, because you didn't go to high school. You didn't go to university. You never learned any physics. You're just a brain whose memories are the result of a kind of a random thing that's happened. So good. You don't believe in physics. Phew. Well, in that case, you don't have to believe that you're a Boltzmann brain. But wait, if you're not a Boltzmann brain, you did go to high school. You have learned those things. You do have reasons to believe physics. So, ooh, I'm a Boltzmann brain after all. But wait. If I'm a bot, you see where this is going, right? There's a nasty logical circularity, and maybe it's something going on with that that is the problem. One of my colleagues is interested in that. Another thing people do is wonder whether there's something wrong in the foundations of statistical reasoning. There's a principle which says if you have a whole bunch of states and you don't have any probabilities for those states, you should just take them to be all equally likely. And maybe something in that argument where I said, look, there are all these Boltzmann brains in the future and there's only one at the beginning here. You should therefore believe that the probability of your being the one at the beginning is one on the total number of Boltzmann brains, right? Maybe there's something wrong with that. And there are you know, some reasons for thinking that that principle, although we have to use it sometimes, is not good in all generality. Another approach people have to this big puzzle about brains and the cosmos, a puzzle according to which if it's true you aren't seeing anything, let alone seeing the unseen, is maybe there's something funny about the whole idea of super short-lived consciousness. So I work on the philosophy of consciousness and one approach that we've been considering is Look, maybe Boltzmann brains wouldn't have consciousness. Maybe consciousness requires four-dimensional extension. Maybe brains have to exist over a reasonable amount of time for there to be consciousness. I don't think I believe that, but it would be good if it were true because it would help undermine this argument. So whatever the right story is when we have it, we'll have learned really important things. But that's the message of my talk. The message of my talk is that arguments with absolutely crazy conclusions should not be ignored. Sometimes they have unbelievable conclusions because they're obviously stupid and bad arguments. Sometimes those unbelievable conclusions are true. But the important cases, and I think this is one of them, are ones where the unbelievable conclusions reveal that something is seriously wrong with our beliefs. And that, I think, is a message which extends far more generally. Whether you're thinking about politics, history, the natural sciences, metaphysics, philosophy, literature, anything really, if someone has an argument that has a preposterous conclusion, try and find out what their argument for that preposterous conclusion is. 
Don't just ignore it because the conclusion is preposterous. Because it may turn out that even though you reject the conclusion, just like I'm inviting you to reject the idea that all you are is a about-to-be-frozen brain in gas, you may learn a great deal by finding out what's wrong with that argument. You may learn that something you thought was obvious, a matter of fact, or a principle of reasoning, is badly wrong. Look, one, one question I wanted to start off with, um, and, and this is, I guess, really addressed to Fernando, Celine, and, and well, I guess the, the, the whole panel, um, uh, and, and Michael as well, is what do you think is left to see if, if we think about the nature of developments in brain imaging, the nature of developments in physics, and Celine was sort of gesturing at this, where is there a limit to the as it were, the seeable. We're, we're seeing things now that we could never imagine. Fernando showed those beautiful images, and I'll come back to David in a second on this. Celine's showing these amazing simulations. Michael's showing unbelievable specificity of these lesions in the brain in three dimensions. Do you, are we reaching a limit of, of are, we, are we now able to see everything? What's left to see? Yeah, so I mean, if I start, I think that's the beauty of, of, of this, that is, you know, if you think in the same way that if we were to show these pictures to, I don't know, Leonardo da Vinci or Thomas Willis, all these people hundreds and hundreds of years ago that were trying to, you know, do neuroanatomy, they would just, their mind would blow. Similarly, it's hard <laughs> to imagine, you know, even in my short career in the 20, 20 something years it has changed so much the field of what we can do and see with these techniques that it's impossible to imagine that we're going to ever get to a point where we, there is nothing else to improve. And this is the beauty of things that is all the time there is something new. And when you think, okay, what else could come? There is something else there. And it's always, you know, new things coming along. So it's, as I see it, it's never ending. There's always going to be something a new method to see, a new thing to understand, a new piece of information. And this brings me maybe something that we can also discuss later is the big data. The amount of data and information we get now is just ridiculous. We can't, you know, it's hard to see and understand that data. And that's where things like AI and things like that is going to help us push it to the next level. Michael, Celine, where do we reach the limits? If we, if we, so, so much of science is about revealing, you know, seeing the unseen. I mean, what are the limits of, of the scene? I mean, have we reached them? Are we, what, what's going to hold us back? Uh, I mean, I totally agree with Fernando. I don't think we're anywhere near the limit. And he's right. In the last even 10 years, our capacity to see into the brain, particularly see into how diseases progress in the brain that we would not have seen any change on, say, a standard MRI 10 years ago has just been completely transformed. And I think AI probably is going to be the next frontier. It may not be us who sees these change. It may not be seeing in the visual sense, but it may be a machine that determines those changes using artificial intelligence applied to large data sets. And a great example is MRI, where we are feeding in our research thousands and thousands of these images that are well beyond the comprehension of a human eye to capture small changes that we wouldn't otherwise even consider. And that is particularly important in disease states where we are trying to find biomarkers of change in disease so that we can monitor response to novel therapies. And I think uh, AI is going to play an enormous role in that field. So you just said something 
fascinating to me. So it might not be, so we're, so there are still, there's still much to be revealed, still much to be seen, but potentially it won't be human beings who right. reveal yeah, yeah. the unseen in the future. It will be machines. So could you say a bit more about that? That's a very strange idea. <laughs> that, 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 that's the answer to your question about the limits. Hmm. The limits aren't the limits of what we can do by hmm. producing images. Limits are what we, how we can look at them and how we can process them, how can we can understand them. So the technique of producing compl complex images mm. becomes even more interesting when you've got mm. machines able to read those images, see those images mm. in a way that we can't. So, so the future seeing won't be our seeing. <laughs> That's right. The, so yeah, the unseen will be revealed by non-human in some way, they're telling us yeah. that, they, you know, these algorithms that we're training with the image, they're telling us what are the important features that we need to focus on what is the pieces of information in that huge amount of data that we have mm. that is providing the biomarkers for disease or the, you know, the changes, if you do a treatment, what is changing in the brain, they're telling us what is the piece of information that we should be looking. Mm. Celine? Yeah, so for us, it's a bit more um, nuanced in a sense, because on one hand, I would say we have reached um, a certain limit. Uh, we, we thought we would see the dark matter. I've been in the field for more than 20 years, and we really thought it would be the time now, right now, where we can see it. And actually, uh, so far, we don't find it. So we're wondering whether we have the right technology, the correct technology, and whether we can actually see it. So maybe, maybe we need something else. Uh, on the other hand, we are able just right now to, um, to see black holes. Mm. So, you know, I think the future may be promising and we may find new technology to see. So, um, we also use uh, AI. And in fact, in, uh, in my school, we have a number of people who study also the brain using AI. But we, has, we have people who are starting to think about beyond AI. So, uh, there is Zedenka Kunchik, for example, I think her picture is, is there. She's thinking of what, what happens if you need to actually adjust to the environment and have new information. So, it may be that we, we actually reach our limits, but maybe indeed beyond AI actually could maybe find the dark matter if it could come with a proposal. So far, so far it's limited to our own brain. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so David, let me just bring you in here for a second. Um, the assumption of Fernando and, and Celine and Michael is that the more we can see, the more we can understand. But philosophers have mm. always challenge that, that, that in a sense, we're, philosophers often are, are a bit skeptical about the senses, they're a bit skeptical of images, they're a bit skeptical of what we, as it were, uh, are able to access through our sight or through our touch or our taste. Is it true that we're understanding more the more that we can see? Does that follow necessarily? Yeah, I, I, I think it does. I mean, I, I'm one of the people who's not skeptical about the kind of imaginative or, or the imaging way of thinking and understanding. Um, I think I'm one of those philosophers who thinks you might not be able to see it with your senses, but unless you can imagine it in a kind of quasi-spatial visual way, there's a danger you're just using words mm. rather than actually understanding a way the world might actually be. Mm. And I think sort of seeability is sort of a test for whether you've really got an idea or whether you're just using words. Mm. So let me, let, me turn that, let me turn that around now to, 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 to the other three of you. In, in, in working with this extraordinary equipment, and again, the images are stunning, we're, we're seeing the power of computing, how, how has it changed your own imagination? How have you 
How have you reconceptualized what you learned as a student or as a young researcher? If, if we take David's lead and say, no, actually we are, in fact, uh, this is a great test for us. Well, how, is this how have these extraordinary developments changed the way, the, the way you think about the brain or the way you think about the universe or the way you now think about disease? What, what's, what's happened for you? I mean, go ahead, go ahead, I, I can tell you that it's to totally changed the way we think about neurological disease because we were always taught in neurology that this part of the brain controls language, this part of the brain right. controls vision, this part of the brain controls motor function. And um, that was drummed into us uh, over and over again. And now that we're seeing the brain not as isolated parts but as a connected world, uh, a connectome, um, we think about disease in a, in a vastly different way and we think about treating disease in a different way. An example might be epilepsy where we thought of a focus in the brain generating seizures, but now we think that it's actually a whole network that is dysfunctional mm. and we have to find ways to, again, disrupt that dysfunctional network. Mm. So I, th I think for me, really, neurology is totally different. Mm. We, we were given textbooks on localization in neurology and it's a good way, I suppose, to learn how to do a clinical examination and interpret a patient's signs but really, it, it's a false premise. Mm, mm. And I think also it's interesting to see how generations would change. You know, if I think of, I don't know, my grandparents, and if they were to, if we were to ask them, what is the brain? They probably would just draw a little blob. <laughs> I'm sure that if I ask my, my children, you know, when they are old and I said, you know, they're going to just, they, they grown with seeing tons of information the same way that we see how they see computers, how they see everything is changing. And, and so it's more they... You see now the inside of your body in TV all the time in presentations like mm. these. How we teach is going to change too, because you know, are we going to in twenty years time, thirty years time, be cutting you know in medicine, cutting people and showing, or is it going to be done all virtual and, and holograms and things like that? So I think it is changing completely how we see things, mm. and 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 this comes back to what I was saying that is before that. It's exciting that at least from the imaging point of view, I don't think we are in the in the brain. Or in, in medicine, I would say we are anywhere close to get to where we, you know, it's going to be exciting to see what's coming in there. Celine? The yeah, so f uh, I would say, for example, um, for us, uh, having the images open possibilities to do more tests and uh, prove our hypotheses or refute them. Mm. So, for example, when you see the image of a black hole, like uh, the one from, uh, from April 2019, uh, then the question is, well, what does the dark matter, which is inside galaxy, what does it do to the black hole? I mean, does it change actually the event horizon, for example? So now we can test things that we would have never thought we could, we could test. Mm. So in that respect, we can come with crazy ideas and, uh, and we can basically uh, test them, mm. which is, I, I think it's a major development. It doesn't necessarily change our conception of galaxies, but it comes up with more concrete mm -hmm. uh, um, value, basically, for false tests. So. Outside the realms of neuroscience and, uh, and physics, Seeing has got some ethical problems, I think, some really interesting questions. Seeing is really powerful. If you give people experiences and, and make them literally see things a certain way, they're much more likely to believe it, much more likely to take it on board than if you just give them words and arguments and so forth. And one real worry is with virtualization, you can emerge, immerse someone into a virtual world for a while. If you've triggered that world so that it makes the world seem to be a certain way, they're much more likely to go away believing that for a long time. Mm. And 
depending on how you set it up and who you are, there are real problems. No, if we, I mean, if we had time and we had a political scientist uh, or a political theorist on this panel, um, they might be worried about how some of these technologies can be turned around and used in, in all kinds of nefarious ways, if I can put it that way. Uh, and we're seeing that now Absolutely. more and more with the manipulation of video images and the ma manipulation of images and, 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 and the way in which that can penetrate the public culture in all kinds of worrying ways. So I think that is something that you know, is distinctive. Technology has this dual use aspect to it and it's something uh, I think uh, there are profound ethical questions about. Okay, let's now, you've been working hard, so don't, I, I want to remind you, not, not, not only do we have a performance uh, before we end tonight, but we're going to give you tea and cake because <laughs> you've, you've been accused of being a brain in a gaseous universe <laughs> and it's the least we can do for you. Uh, uh, and some of you might be believing that, so we're concerned that we have... We, we before have, you disappear. Into that's right, before we disappear into a puff. So, as I said, two final treats before we finish up. Uh, Dr. Benjamin Carey is going to perform a new audiovisual piece on the modular synthesizer with live visuals to really, in a sort of non-verbal way, uh, contribute to the discussion we've been having uh, throughout uh, this evening. So without further ado, Dr. Benjamin Carey.
Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.